insecurity, fear, and pain, leading to binge eating and binge drinking. This conversation is as real and raw as it gets today on Healthy Harmony. Welcome to Healthy Harmony, where we help you clarify and discuss health tactics to harmonize your life. I'm your host and health coach, Jennifer Pickett, and today my guest is Virginia Kerr. Virginia is a speaker and a video coach. She and I met in college while we were FIMU sorority sisters. Then she went on to graduate at the University of Alabama. Virginia was in TV news for over 20 years before moving into network marketing marketing where she replaced her income. Her story is a successful story, but it is one of binge eating and binge drinking. So Virginia, thank you so much for joining me today and just kind of opening up and being so real with us. I'm How so are you? good. I'm so excited to be on this with you. Girl, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a long well, it's, time. And it's going to be so crazy because I've never talked about my story with someone who was like with me during it all, but didn't know. You know what I mean? Like, oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we met in college, you know, we were in the same um, pledge class for our sorority and um, at the University of Montevallo, such a, a great university. Um, but yeah, so I'm interested to kind of hear because I, I mean, I was clueless, you know, and I think we all had our own struggles, but your story is a very powerful one. So I want us to get just right into it. Um, you said that you started binge eating at a really young age. Um, what prompted that? Well, I remember it was kind of set up, I guess, when I was in ballet class when I was 13. And I remember her, our, our instructor telling us, you know, we needed to lose weight. And I had hips, but I was not by any means overweight. So that kind of planted a seed. And I was, you know, very aware of what I was eating and I was restricting big time. But when I look back, please know I did not put two and two together until many, many years later. When I look back, it was okay. probably less than a year after that, that my father was diagnosed with bipolar and he had his first manic episode. And manic episode for him meant um, he was spending crazy amounts of money behind my mother's back, um, just up and down emotional roller coaster. And it was very confusing and obviously devastating. And I didn't know what to do with it. And at my school, I was already trying to appear to be perfect and fit in like any 13, 14 year old would. But now I had this definitely yeah, now I had this going on. And so that's when I remember it really flaring up. And so I would come home and I would literally, we had a walk-in pantry. I would turn the light on in the pantry and sit in the floor and just gorge on chocolate candy bars. And then however many I ate, I would count up the calories and then I would go run trying to run off all the calories. So that's when it first started. Oh, goodness. So you were you were um, intuitive enough to go, wait a minute, I know this is not good, but I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to, I'm going to burn off all these calories. So you would calculate all of that as a 13. Oh, yeah. Month. And I tried to throw up, but it just never would work. I even tried some awful concoction that I heard of somewhere and thought it would induce, you know, me vomiting. It didn't work. So exercise was how I tried oh, to, to get rid of it. 
So do you feel like you really just turned to binge eating to kind of numb the pain that you were experiencing? What was going on at home at the time with your dad and how did that progress? Absolutely. So I look back and again, I, I didn't figure this out until I was not, I mean, too long ago. I mean, probably in the last 10 years, but, um, at home, my mom worked and we didn't discuss what was going on with him other than her yelling at him and me hearing that. I mean, it was just, it was a very chaotic lifestyle and, and family dynamic. And so we just, as the oldest, I just wanted to suck it up and keep going. And again, try to maintain my perfect image at school and then make sure I was making good grades. And so we didn't discuss anything and I certainly wasn't telling anybody about it. So I was basically burying my feelings with food. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I can certainly relate to that, just kind of wearing a mask. We we like to put on a, a great front. Um, I was actually telling my daughter the other day that uh, growing up and even now, I just, I'm, I'm really good at being fake, at just kind of putting on that fake smile and in certain situations, knowing what to do and knowing what to say. And I'm kind of coming into that realization of, wow, this is this goes mm-hmm. way back. So you're looking back and seeing that um, you you were doing these destructive behaviors kind of behind the scenes, but you desperately wanted to look like you had it all together on the surface. So how long did this pattern of binge eating continue? Oh, for over 20 years, definitely. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and it wow. would go, I mean, there were seasons that maybe I would distract myself enough, or that's when I I started drinking, um, at the age of 14. And so maybe I would try to starve all day and then I would go out drinking that night. And so that's how I was avoiding and numbing the pain. Um, and so sometimes I would lose a little bit of weight. I remember I gained a ton of weight and then my freshman year, I, I grew like three or four inches. So that kind of stretched me out. But I mean, I was obsessed with food every single day of my life. It was, all consuming. And it went on until my early, my early thirties. Oh my goodness. So what was it, uh, during your college years, you said that you kind of had a growth spurt and it kind of evened out, but what did you start to see about yourself as you uh, started to move into those college years? Well, in my college years, you know, we, we have a sorority. And so just like at school, I brought all those insecurities or just like high school, I brought all those insecurities with me and I was comparing myself to everybody else. You know, I, looking back, I, I never felt comfortable in large social situations. And so that's when my drinking really escalated. And I don't even know if you're aware of this. I would be shocked if you weren't, but I got in trouble. I'm certainly, yeah, I'm not, well, I don't, I don't remember it. If I was aware of it, I certainly don't remember it. Yeah, I got in trouble for my drinking when we were in college, um, my eating, I can remember this. So you know how at our school, like most people went home on the weekends. Well, I, I had, I had a job (laughs) and so I would stay, I had three roommates, but I would stay back and I would be the only one in the room in the the, uh, apartment. And I can remember going to get Duncan Hines tubs of icing and I would eat the entire thing in one sitting. Um, sometimes two. I mean, that's, so I was binge eating always behind closed doors. The only person who knew about my binge eating was my sister and she was doing the same thing. So we literally were binging together. Um, she's younger than me. Yeah. So my, the drinking started to pick up in college, but in college, everybody's binge drinking at, at least it seems, but 
it's just yeah. a way of life, uh, you know, a very destructive way of life, but it's certainly a way of right. life. And the difference with me was we went to a, that was a really small school. And so when I got in trouble, cause I would black out and do things that I don't even remember doing. Like I remember I got called in front of our sorority standards because I like kissed one of our sorority sisters, boyfriends in the middle of a bar. I didn't even remember doing it. And so looking back, what my excuse was is that, well, y'all are just a lame, small liberal arts school. Like at a real party school, I'd be like everybody else. And so eventually I went to Alabama and I was right. Everybody partied. Um, but looking, yeah, <laughs> that's a big, big party But looking school. back, I was basically battling depression and I was trying to self-medicate is what was going on. Oh my goodness. So tell me this, you, um, I mean, I've known you for a long time, and I think anybody that follows you on social media would look at you and go, there's no way she had insecurities. Like, she's so outgoing. How You said that you were kind of, uh, you felt a little bit insecure in social settings, um, and I wouldn't have guessed that in a million <laughs> years. So is that just something else that you kind of helped, you kind of had hidden, and you just kind of drank as a way of coping so that you would feel like you were more comfortable and Absolutely. would Absolutely. And now that I don't drink, I realize um, I'm not an extrovert. I drank to the point of being an extrovert, but I am not one. So I can handle social settings, but I don't like to spend a lot of time with a lot of people. I have to have alone time to fill back up, to recharge, if you will. Um, and okay. I think people see me as outgoing because I am a performer type. I'm a broadcaster. I'm, in, I'm very comfortable in front of the camera. I'd always been like that. But I never felt secure. I never saw me as how other people saw me, but I was a perfectionist and I was a very high functioning drinker. So in my later years, towards the end of my uh, drinking career, if you will, um, I was hitting all the goals, reaching the top of my company. You know, I was, I always put on the perfect face. I got everything done. You know, I was a workaholic. I mean, but that's why my drinking continued to escalate was because it was a lot of pressure I put on myself and it, and I was hiding a lot of shame. Okay, Virginia, I have to ask you, uh, you referenced being in the TV news industry. That is, that's a tough industry to get into. So how difficult was it to get into that industry? It is difficult. And it's a hard industry to be a part of as well, just because you do make so much sacrifice. But I became interested in being in television news when I was 11. And then I became obsessed and fixated with it as I got older to this point that I would watch every local news program. I would show up anytime a local news anchor was speaking and try to take anything and everything away from them so that I could apply it and figure out how to be them when I grow up. I even went to a broadcast journalism camp when I was in uh, 11th grade. Uh, oh, wow. But, yeah, I know. I was obsessed, but to a fault because I... I really had convinced myself, looking back, I realize this now, that I thought that once I had achieved my goals of being a broadcast journalist, I would finally find happiness and self-worth. And my first job was in Missoula, Montana. And I remember going out there and I thought I had hit it because I was no longer binge eating for the first few weeks because I was so busy. And I lost weight immediately. And then I got stressed out and I found myself doing the same exact thing. You know, 
isolating myself and, and binge eating on ice cream and, and candy. So I was still just miserable. returning to those yeah. old habits. Yeah, you your brain goes with you everywhere you go. And so <laughs> that's a very good way to put that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was just now an unhappy television anchor, basically. But every time I would get the opportunity to, you know, go to the next market, I told myself, oh, this is the one. This is going to be the, the the job that solves it all. And honestly, it just was worse and worse because not only was I binge eating and clearly not addressing issues that were going on, I was also addicted to toxic relationships with men. And so I always had a boyfriend and they never were healthy relationships ever. And so that just made it worse, but I was addicted to the drama too. Um, Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's so much there that I want us to unpack. So first of all, it's, it's kind of like that elusive search for happiness. Like when I get to this point, when I break into broadcast journalism, I'll be happy. And when I have this job as a TV news anchor, I'll be happy. And when I find this man, I'll be happy. But it sounds like you found yourself just really falling back to those very old, um, harmful habits. Um, and that trauma that you had endured your whole life, uh, that that was had become a part of you, never really left. So I wanted you to kind of expand upon, you said that not only were you binge eating um, to deal with the stress of the, the industry and the job, but also you found yourself really drawn to men that you should not be, just kind of taking part in those very toxic relationships. So tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I was always looking for the dad that I didn't have, but just like we had a chaotic life at home, that's what I was used to. There was drama there too. We were either on a big high and everybody was happy, or I was waking up to my parents fighting and uh, me, you know, trying to pretend like everything was okay. And and that's exactly what I learned. I, I learned to expect that. And I was broken and I was attracting broken people. And, you know, the, the me now, if I was on the dating scene, wouldn't have dated any of those people. Um, because I would have, I would see clearly that they were not treating me well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they always were big drinkers always. So we were, that just made it worse, you know, because we were not only, broken people, but we were drunk, broken people. So wow, that's a powerful statement. uh, Drunk, broken people. And I find it interesting that you, you didn't even realize you were broken, right? No, I I just never even, I think, and not that I want to blame, sound like I'm blaming anybody because, you know, your parents only know what they know. And, And looking back, my parents came from extremely dysfunctional families, like worse than ours. So that's what they learned. And so it's passed on from generation to generation. But I remember my mom always acting like, you know, she never had a problem. My dad was the one that always needed the counseling and and she never suggested we go to counseling. So that just never crossed my mind because I just oh, thought wow. you had to be crazy like my father to need to go to therapy. So I never, I never questioned anything. I just thought I was literally, I just thought you were just never meant to be happy. Like this is just, you, you weren't lucky to get that life. You're just not meant to be happy. My goodness, you made some powerful statements there. So you never really sought help because you didn't think anything was wrong. Only people with the extremes like your dad needed help. So you never really got help. Were you ever, did you ever seek like medical attention? Um, or was this just part of your norm? It, 
I mean, look, it was just my life. That's just, I didn't know anything different. Now, yeah. when I was 20, I believe I was 28, I went to a counselor. So now I'm at my second TV job in Spokane, Washington. I went to a counselor um, because of the eating. And I only went to one visit. And I remember him saying, it sounds like you're an all or nothing person, which I was like, yeah, I mean, of course you go all in for anything, you know? Hello. Yeah, that's how, yeah. that's how it's done. That's the measure of success, right? You yeah, have to go yeah. all in at all costs. And, but again, I, I didn't think I really needed the help and I only went to one session. So that was it. Uh, when I eventually left a very dysfunctional relationship and got my job in St. Louis, um, the binge eating and the drinking got worse than ever. I, I don't, you probably would understand what was going on in my body before I would, but I remember one night I'd gone out drinking. I came home, I drove drunk to the grocery store, got a carton of ice cream, tons of candy bars and M&Ms, came home, ate it all, passed out. And then my, I had a dog and I lived in a high rise apartment in St. Louis. And I had to, she woke me up at 2 a.m., had to go let her out. And I, I lived in St. Louis. Okay. So just oh, keep goodness. in mind. And yeah. I'm like city limits, like within the city, St. Louis. And so I'm by myself, 2 a.m. walking my dog and I passed out and not from drinking. I passed out twice on my way, walking back into the apartment building. My dog was licking me to wake me up oh, and keep my me up. Word. Yes. Did anybody find you as you were passed out or did you like kind of your dog, you came too because your dog was licking you to wake yes. you up. Yes. And then I remember, um, there was like a security door before the main door. So there was like a little, uh, you know, um, space in between the two doors. I remember passing out in there and waking up. So I may have passed out three times <laughs> and so, and then the doorman was there and I don't think he ever saw that I passed out. I, all I remember is being embarrassed. And then I went upstairs, but that really scared me. I, I remember thinking, am I diabetic now? What have I done to myself? So I would go on these crazy fasts, um, backing up, uh, the, the worst binge I can remember besides that one was in Spokane towards the end of my stint there. And I remember, um, I had a, I had a, uh, falling out with the, the guy I was dating and I went home. I didn't keep a lot of food in my house because I, you know, I didn't want to have unhealthy food and I certainly didn't want to have temptation. So I remember coming home from this date and being devastated. And all I had in my pantry was a box of pancake mix, I proceeded to make pancakes, didn't even let them completely cook. And I ate so many pancakes and they expanded into my, in my stomach that my stomach was so bloated that my skin was stretching so much that I was, I remember laying on my little foam pier one couch, looking at my bare stomach, thinking it's about to split open. It hurts oh, so bad. Yeah. And I remember the next day not eating the entire day and I was still full and felt like I'd just eaten a Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, that's how much I would intake. Yeah, uh, just the extremes, right? Yeah, yeah. So did it ever, um, after, you know, some of these episodes, whether it was, you know, an episode with a, a boyfriend and a toxic relationship or an episode where you passed out and you come to because your dog is licking you, did it ever, did it cross your mind like the next day, hey, I've got a problem. Something's wrong here. I've got to get some help. Um. Not yet. Not, nope, not then. Um, I, and I, oh, by the way, I'd already entered another uh, toxic relationship at that point. Um, and so, oh, wow. and, and it was the end all be all, but um, no, I just, the voice in my head would just say, you're disgusting. 
Like, what is wrong with you? I never thought you need help. I just thought you're a terrible, trashy person. And, and Lord help us if anybody finds out the truth. That, that's the kind of stuff I would say to myself. Um, but so anybody course, looking at you would never would never assume these things, right? Because on the surface, you you were having the time of your life and your career. Um, you're gorgeous, and you've got this great personality. So was that all a front? Absolutely, it was a front. And I don't know if people would agree with you at that point in my life. I think okay. there were people okay. at work that probably could see that something was off. Um, so, Did they ever say anything to you, or was it just this is how she is and just kind of let it go? No, I was, I was a very guarded person. So I think I just kept to myself except for what little I would want to share. And I didn't have a lot of close friends. In fact, I never had a lot of close friends. I mean, even, you know, when we went to school together, I can't remember having a close friend. I always had a boyfriend um, and, and the boyfriends were never great people. And I knew I would isolate myself with them. And then when I would finally break up with them and I'd tell the few friends that I had, then I'd go back to the boy and then I would isolate myself again because then I was embarrassed that I told them the things I did. And I went, you know, sure, it just, sure. um, so yeah, I didn't get help until, so eventually I married the one that I started dating in St. Louis. Um, and it got so bad that I finally went to counseling And that's when I started to put two and two together. And she was helping me understand that I didn't have boundaries with my father. And, um, and so I, I go to, I go to counseling with that. And I think, oh, all of this had to do with my dad. And that's why I was eating like that. And Mm -hmm. I need to get out of this toxic relationship. And so I did, I ended up getting a divorce. Um, and then I just basically traded in the binge eating to binge drinking because I could, I dropped a ton of weight. Uh, I did finally get put on antidepressants and that helped, but the drinking started to pick up slowly, but it started to pick up. And then that's when I, I really started to go down that path of abusing alcohol and and eventually drinking up to two bottles a night of wine. Oh, wow. So what do you think really prompted the binge drinking and how did that play into uh, the relationship with the boyfriend you had at the time who is now your husband? Um, Okay, so I got I got a divorce. Then I I didn't date for a little. I mean, I well, I, I don't know if you'd call that dating. I had a, a very self destructive season there for a little bit, and then um, I decided I, I really needed to you know get back with God and and start um, really working on myself. And I was in counseling, and then I was set up on a blind date with my husband now, and I didn't want to go out with him because I thought he was really boring. And I think this is really <laughs> key because. If it wasn't for my counselor at the time, I would have not pursued that relationship. And she oh, just wow. kept saying to me, you're being, you're being exposed to what respect looks like with a man. And you don't think it's exciting because there's no drama and you're addicted to drama and you need to let him treat you the way you deserve to be treated. And just, and, and she described him as a slow burn. She said, all of your previous relationships have been these big balls of fire. They swept you off your feet and they were so bright and shiny that you didn't even see the red flags. And then as soon as you see how toxic it is and dysfunctional, you break it off with them and you're out. And she said, but what Jason is, is a slow burn. He treats you with respect. You don't have the ups and downs that you're used to. So give it a chance. And so I did. 
That's so yeah. interesting that I she know. was able to word it in such a way that you were like, it was very insightful and you, and you kind of, uh, you saw that. So I wanted to ask you, how did it make you feel at that time when she said, hey, you're addicted to drama? Like, that's the problem. Like, how, like what was your thought process when she used those words? Uh, it, it made total sense. I, I don't know if then I realized the connection between because that's what you were used to when you grew up. But I was, but I did make the connection of yeah, everything. All these previous relationships were dramatic. You're right. That makes okay. sense to me. Here's where I met, had the disconnect. Yes, I understood I need boundaries with my father. Yes, I understood that I had gotten in a bad pattern of eating and, you know, being in always being in a toxic relationship. I did not understand that I had a problem with establishing boundaries in every area of my life with everybody. I still let people mistreat me. And I also took things way too personally, which codependent people with no boundaries tend to do. And so I didn't know any of that stuff until I quit drinking this past year. That's when that light bulb came on and everything changed. My goodness. Okay, so you you referenced that um, it was just kind of your norm to drink two bottles of wine um, a day. So um, when was your wake up call that you realized, hey, this has gotten out of control, I'm binge drinking, and this is a lot of wine I'm consuming. What was it? Because you had been through so much. What was it? Um, and it's just been recent that that made that light turn on and make you say, I've got to do something. Well, the thing about drinking addiction is it's for many people, it is a very slow progression. So I, I remember the first time I drank by myself. Well, I mean, I'm sure I did it before at some point, but when I see the beginning of what happened, it was when my son was born. So this was nine years ago and my husband had gone on a, a uh, hunting trip. And that was the first time I drank by myself wine. And it was maybe a couple of glasses. And I thought, oh, this is a nice way to just take off the edge and have something to look forward to at the end of the day. It and seems so innocent, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And then it just, it kept going, kept going. My eating was not that I was restricting, but I was not binge eating. I would, I wouldn't eat a lot for dinner. So, uh, you know, a couple of glasses of wine would hit me pretty hard. Um, but eventually your tolerance, you know, goes up it and does, it does. And then I kept adding on, I was also in debt. So again, binger, I was a binge spender too. So I was in all this debt too. And so that was weighing on our marriage. And that's when I started my network marketing. Well, I, I don't know how much I should be telling you, but there's just like, basically the pattern is when bad things happen to me, I brushed them aside and I did not handle them. So I had a lot of okay. miscarriages and my miscarriages, I would just toss aside, you know, like, Oh, it's okay. I can handle it. And I would just keep moving. Like I had always done, but I was drinking to numb myself from all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the two glasses of wine a night, nine years ago, that slowly turned into two bottles of wine. And my perfectionism was an, at an all-time high. I replaced my income. I paid off all of my debt. All these great things I could brag about. But a lot I never of success, wanted, right? You had a lot tons. of success when you when you switched from um, the TV news industry. And uh, you said that you made that decision to go into network marketing because you wanted to get out of debt. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then I realized this the potential with it was tremendous. So I was like, why? I wasn't happy with my job. Um, and so I decided to 
replace my income. And so that's what I did. You know, I could, I was all or nothing. I was either, you know, full throttle going towards a goal or it didn't interest me at all. And I had, you know, nothing to do with it. No part of it. Very Um, interesting. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, the guilt and shame was starting to build just like it did when I was binge eating and telling myself those awful things. When I was binge eating, the very first thing I thought of, I mean, the second my eyes opened was, what did you eat before you went to sleep? And then I would bash myself. Why did you do that? That's disgusting. You're not eating the rest of the day. Those same thoughts started coming with the drinking. And they weren't consistent enough for me to to quit drinking, even though all the red flags were there. I didn't get a DUI, but I should have. I mean, there were times that I'm, I'm like, man, God was saving me for something because I don't know how I survived that. Yeah. But you have these, when you are struggling with drinking, you have these rules. And I had rules like I would never drive my son buzzed. I would only have a certain amount of glasses of wine out in public. Most of my drinking was done behind closed doors, just like the binging. So my binge eating. My husband was the only person who really knew how much I was drinking. And even he didn't know exactly how much he's not a wine drinker. So he has to this day, doesn't understand that my wine was way more powerful than his beer. Um, yeah. and so it was November 3rd of last year. And and keep in mind, I'd tried to quit a thousand times before. And I woke up at 3am because that's when I always woke up with those voices in my head, but the voices were getting nastier and nastier. When they say that drinking, you know, addiction is a slow suicide. I totally get it because I was starting to have the beginnings of those thoughts. Like you're disgusting. You don't deserve the family that you have. You're probably going to die of cancer because of the way that you are treating your body and you deserve it anyway. Your family deserves better. I mean, it was just sick. Let me stop you right there because that's a, an interesting statement. You said that drinking is a slow suicide. So is it because of those those thought processes? Explain that a little bit more. Well, drinking addiction, I'm not saying everybody has this um, problem if they're drinking, but uh, yeah, I, I truly believe, I know because I did, this is how I got, one of, the re- how, one of the ways I got sober was to understand what alcohol does to your brain. And your brain starts to become dependent on it so much, but it's also a depressant. And so you're, even though I was on an antidepressant, who knows if it was really working because I was, I was taking a depressant every single day and you get to the point where your drinking is not even that fun anymore. It's just that you can't not drink. You think you can go a day and then immediately all of a sudden you're jonesing for that drink and you don't understand why because you told yourself that day you weren't going to do it just like I did with a binge eating. But your your brain is chemically wired to expect it. So even though consciously you don't want it, subconsciously your brain just assumes that that's what we're going to do now. Um, Even now, it's one of the ways I was able to stay sober is, for instance, when I went home to Alabama to visit my family. I'd never been sober there. I always got wasted each night oh, there. Oh goodness. Yeah. And so not too and long how ago. Did you I, cope? Well, so I I mean I have lots of hacks that I, you know, do when that happens. But one of the things that I know is that I didn't have enough experiences in my memory, my subconscious mind to not associate drinking with going home. So the first time I went home sober, we always go to this Mexican restaurant. And I just all of a sudden overwhelmingly wanted to drink. And it's because my, my brain 
associated drinking at that Mexican restaurant. So I needed to go to that Mexican restaurant and not drink a few times so that I could almost replace those memories. So I wouldn't have those, those triggers and those urges anymore. Just kind of that rewiring of Mm -hmm. your brain. So go back to, um, you said that you were being awoken in the middle of the night, you would wake up with these horrendous thoughts about yourself. How did that lead to you making a decision that enough is enough? So in October of last year, I was hosting a leadership day for my team and I had hired a business coach to come in and she had us do this exercise where we just freestyle wrote whatever came to our mind. If we, if we could do anything in the world and, it, and we knew it wouldn't fail, what would we do? And I didn't even think, I just wrote. And I wrote, <clears throat> I wrote down that I was going to be, I was going to help women I don't know why this is making me cry now. I was going to help women with depression and anxiety. And I was going to be a public speaker, which was really funny because that was my biggest fear. That was the biggest fear when I joined network marketing was having to speak in front of people because in front of a camera is nothing to me. Like that's not a person. That's one person. It's how I see it. Okay. So the camera was not a big deal, but speaking in front of others is a whole nother ball game. Yes. And, but I, but I was so, again, when I get a, when I get fixated on the goal, nothing's going to stop me. So I'll do whatever I have to do. And so that I forced myself to get okay with speaking in rooms full of people about my business. But this was a whole new ball game that I had put on paper. Like I was saying I was basically going to be in some way a motivational speaker. And I'm like, what did I just write down? And that's when it happened. I really felt God say, I have really big plans for you, but I can't use you with this drinking. And I, and I had felt him tapping me on my shoulder for years, but it just wasn't worth me trying to figure out if he really would be there for me and help me. Um, so that was mid to late October of last year. And then it was November 3rd when I woke up and I'm just like, I'm done. This has to work. I have to stop. Your your words um, simply just kind of take my breath away, and I find myself at a loss because um, I can hear the pain in your voice, and I know that um, your words are really going to resonate. I think so many of us, we turn to um, alcohol, we turn to food as a means of coping, as a means of just kind of numbing that pain Um, And so your recognition of that and your recognition of how God wanted to use you, but that you needed to give you needed to give up the alcohol. So um, you have been without alcohol now for a year. And um, I want to know what that process has looked like. Well, the great thing is you can use all of the things that got you where you are to get you out. And so, like I said, when I go all in, I go all in. And I did the same thing I did to get into television. I did the same thing that I did to get to the top of my company oh, wow. in network marketing. And that is I became extremely coachable. I found the people who had done it and I studied them like I was you know, about to take the test of my life. So it started with, and also I found people like, I found people in my network that I could, even if I didn't know them well, I just, I reached out to them because they had shared their story. And I knew that, um, 
they, I needed, I needed someone who had been there, done that. So but you the, asked for help. You truly got into this very proactive mode. Yes. And I love that word coachable because I think it's so very important. We don't have to figure it all out on our own, but we can look to others. So you, so you reached out to others for their help as well. I did. Um, and and I, you have to, you have to have that because just because you say you're all in doesn't mean you're going to have, you're not going to have moments of weakness where you decide that you're going to throw it all out the window. So the first thing I did was I, I reached out to them, but I ordered books. I ordered like, I think I started off with three books. And the first book that I read was called A Happier Hour. And that was basically a woman who documented her entire journey and what she did. And one of the things that she did was she got a fresh journal and she wrote down in very specific detail the type of person she wanted to be, or that in her words, she was. And she wrote down what she could see her life feeling like and looking like. And, and this is the kind of stuff I would do when I was trying to replace my income. You know, I needed to picture myself having that lifestyle I wanted, you know, even though I, I didn't have the income quite yet with my side gig. And so same thing, except I wanted to feel like the mother that I knew I was without alcohol. I wanted to feel and, and be the person I knew I was as a friend without alcohol. And so I really focused on what I was gaining and becoming and not what I was losing and leaving behind. I also was really intentional about focusing on gratitude. And so every morning I couldn't even get out of bed until I thought of three things that I was grateful for. And they were always the, the same three when I first quit drinking. And that was, I'm not hungover. I didn't drink last night. I don't feel guilty. Um, but I you have it. to remember those powerful, because but powerful statements for where you were at that time. Yeah. And, and you have to remember those when you quit drinking, you have to be preparing at the early hours of the day when you're not tempted so that when you get tempted during the witching hour, you've you've already prepped yourself and, and set yourself up for success. And you have and a so, plan. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I did. I because you know, I would drink until I passed out. So I had a really hard time sleeping in the first couple of weeks. So I would read a ton. I did a thousand piece puzzle by myself, anything and everything to keep myself occupied. But for whatever, I mean, I must have read 15, 20 books. And I think it was because in a way I was, because now I just finished reading a book last night and I hadn't read one in a while like that. And it was a very different experience. The old me, I like to call them uh, drink-alogs. That's the part of the, of the book where it's all about them getting wasted. And I just loved it because I, it was almost like I was drinking with them. Like I was experiencing it with them. And then they would get to the part where they got sober and I'm like, bleh. You know, yeah. that's boring. Move now on, move it's on. the opposite. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, get sober already. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's just really interesting. But it was, it was almost like they were my AA meetings in a way because I, because I didn't go to AA meetings or, you know, recovery meetings. I, I just um, would read about what they did. And then the other thing that was really key is I got into podcasts, which is why I eventually started one. But oh, awesome. I listened to a podcast called The Bubble Hour. And there were some days I would listen to that podcast like six or seven episodes because I needed to hear people's regret and what happened when they relapsed on the days that I really wanted to drink. I needed to hear what, what was going to happen if I did that. Oh, that's so fascinating that that was, um, 
that was your journey. And it was just all about that just determined nature and that you weren't depending on um, a meeting, but you were you were truly digging in yourself and studying and learning and being coachable. Um, it's just an extraordinary thing that you've done. But I, I, I know it took such a huge, big step to get there. So um, I am unbelievably sad that our time is just drawing to a close. But um, as we wrap up, I, I want to ask you another question. How would you encourage somebody who is thinking, you know what, I, I relate to her. This is this is painful to listen to because I, I know what she exactly what she's saying, and they feel like they've become too dependent on alcohol. What should they do? Well, I what I love now is that I get to speak with women all the time who maybe they they relate to what I say, but it's not because of drinking. It's like what you said, it's food or it's shopping or it's work. They're numbing in some way. And focus on the person you were designed to be. And maybe you don't even know what that person who that person is. But the first thing you have to do is tell yourself that you deserve to be happy. This thing is I honestly, Jennifer, it's like another toxic relationship. Chardonnay was that bitch BFF who was so much fun to hang out with. And then she slowly turned on me and basically convinced me that I was not fun without her, that I wasn't likable without her. I wasn't funny without her. She started to take me from my child, my husband, you know, more and more. I just wanted to, you know, get my son to sleep so I could go start my, my nightly drinking. She takes your life away. It's so scary and sad that so many people don't see it or they don't feel like they have it in them to quit. So the first thing you have to do is know that there's something better on the other side. And then you've got to go find somebody who's been there, done that. You have to. Most definitely. Most definitely. This has been the most um, eye-opening conversation that I've had in a long time. So I just want to thank you for being so real and so raw with us and just so vulnerable. Um, I know this, uh, it stirs up such a great deal of emotion and um, heartache as you look back on what you've experienced in your life. But um, what I hear is a tremendous amount of hope and encouragement. And I hope that um, our listeners really get that, that um, they see what you've overcome and that there is, there's hope there at the end of the day. Um, So guys, um, uh, I want to make sure you know how to get in touch with Virginia if you have related to this in any way, shape or form. So Virginia, tell us where people can connect with you. I am on Instagram at this is Virginia Kerr. And I also have a podcast called This Is Your Life. And so I talk a lot about my journey and how I was able to get to the other side. And I know I've sound, I sound really sad because I got really emotional today, but I am honestly, I'm not saying life is perfect, but I'm having so much fun not overthinking everything and trying to be perfect and please everybody else. It's, it's so it's very freeing. freeing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I yes. love how we said that in unison. It, it, there's a, so much freedom in yes. that. Yes, yes. 
Um, well, I cannot thank you enough. Um, guys, also remember to subscribe to us at your uh, on your favorite platform of choice. Like us on Facebook, on Instagram, at Inspire Healthy Harmony. You can also join in the discussion, How Destructive Is Alcohol, on our Facebook discussion group, where you can just kind of open up and share your journey there. Uh, you can also check us out at InspireHealthyHarmony.com. So until we meet again, I hope you have a great day. Bye, y'all.